0: Hallelujah. If you would briefly bow your head in prayer with me one more time. Heavenly Father, I'm just awed at the providence of your almighty hand. I just think about the story my mother just shared. And if you hadn't written that story in her heart, I certainly wouldn't be here today. Oh God, how gracious are you. Even as your word says unto a thousand generations, the mighty covenants of our God can do amazing, miraculous work to bring forth your purposes and plans in ways we can never dream or imagine. As we open up our scriptures and as they unfold to us, I pray that the Holy Spirit would write them on the tables of our hearts so that we might be greatly encouraged and add to this testimony, Lord, the rock-solid bedrock of our faith as we read in the scriptures of your holy revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 38. And in a moment, I'll ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of the Word. Psalm chapter 38. This, the second Sunday of the month, is our psalm series. And the Lord in His providence has brought us through three plus years. Today's psalm. Strikes a note a little bit forlorn, but I think you will also see the hope and the purpose in it as we read. So if you would stand with me, if you're able, we'll read these verses, 22 verses from God's holy word. This is a psalm of David and it's written for the memorial offering. Psalm 38 verse 1 we read, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long but I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, verse 15, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accursed, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message from Psalm 38 is Disciplinary Affliction. A second title I was waffling between the two that I had considered was Chastised Unto Waiting. Chastised Unto Waiting. That will be the fourth point of my message this morning. Disciplinary Affliction. There is purpose in the trial and in the great breadth of affliction that the psalmist experienced in these verses and the purpose was primarily disciplinary. To teach, to change and to lead the author to a point of contrition. That is a sorrow for sins that would lead to repentance. That would be initiated at confession. Gospel 101 for the new believer. We just heard a story. A case in point. When we come to the cross, contrition and is the very first step of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We confess that we are sinners, reprobate and lost, not in good standing, falling short of God's glory. And we say we are lost, broken, degenerate. And I have not heard any testimony of that happening in anyone who did not thank God in retrospect for the very circumstances that brought them to that point of confession of sin no matter how egregious how extensive how despondent how miserable how oppressive how anguishing and miserable god had sovereignly ordered their lives to bring them to that point of utter end in ruin of self help and cause them to confess i am broken and lost in need of a savior and only jesus christ can fix this wreckage of a soul. David moves a step beyond that moment where we first come to Christ to recognize that in the life of a believer, as he was a believer, there are further moments of disciplinary affliction that the Lord is faithful as a father chastises his son. The author of Hebrews later tells us in in chapter 12 of that great book, he is faithful to bring us in discipline to points of growth, maturity, and sanctification through the things that He has ordained we suffer. When we consider this psalm, it's helpful to consider it through the eyes of Spurgeon for a number of reasons. For one, he was a man gifted in articulating deep and profound thoughts about the Scriptures. Secondly, he was one who was no stranger to affliction, especially of the soul. He talked about great times and periods in his own life when he would suffer under the crushing weight of depression. But a man like him so trained during those times, was able to proclaim the word of God and to do it with a gravity and a profundity that was only possible through the disciplinary hand of the Lord. And he said things like this, what horrible creature man appears to be to his own consciousness when his depravity and vileness are fully opened up by the law of God God, applied by the Holy Spirit. The law of God, the perfect standard of righteousness, God's beauty, the glory, the aspects of His nature and character and being revealed to us in His decrees and His demands show us in our falling short how truly wicked we are. This psalm is the record of that happening to one man as a pattern for us to recognize that when we are laid bare, we are shown to be odious, detestable, disgusting and abominable in our sin it isn't necessarily the end of the story ultimately because of Christ nevertheless Psalm 38 holds our feet to the fire of chief concern addressing our basic malady our sin the actual and fundamental problem in the heart and core, and the mind and the soul and the actions, the pervasive wickedness of every individual caught in the trap, in the bondage, in the chains of our sin nature. This is an ode of unmitigated, unmitigated brokenness. And it provides a model of penitence, contrition, and confession where the holiness of God is held up and places a demand upon the revelation of God to broken man, that we repent and trust in Him and His way for salvation. If you had been alive in 430 A.D. and would have been acquainted with the great man Augustine, who was gifted by God in his own brokenness and subsequent testimony to codify many beautiful truths that the Word had already declared, but he was gifted to proclaim. If you had been at his bedside... A.D. 430, you would likely have seen this psalm, Psalm 38, posted with about six others, the penitent psalms, on his wall. He lived during a time where the barbarians were invading and his very livelihood was threatened. But to Augustine, there was a much bigger threat than the environment around him or even his physical man. By far and away, he was more concerned with the state of his soul. And this man had an almost tortured reality of the brokenness of his own intentions and wickedness of his own heart. So the last few days alive on this earth, he spent stating over and over, rehearsing over and over psalms like this. As the only balm for a man who is in such anguish that there might be found in him something that was amiss, unrepentant. And far away from the truth that he was wicked and utterly dependent on God for his salvation. Now I trust when we pass on from this life and enter into glory, we will find him there. Why? Because he trusted the same thing in his malady that we who are believers trust today. The Word of God written down in Psalms like Psalm 38 that are the balm for the sin-sick soul. And so we move to Psalm 38 today to discover what was treasure to the saints of old, to Augustine, to David, and ultimately to everyone who is trained to listen to the voice of the Spirit through his holy word. Perhaps we can learn four lessons from the great repenter, David, as he has offered this psalm and memorial offering. The Great Repenter, four lessons. First, context and sin. Secondly, causes of affliction. Thirdly, catalogue of woes, and fourthly, A chastisement unto waiting, waiting on the Lord. First of all, the context and sin. I mentioned briefly that this psalm cannot be understood without an understanding of the depraved nature of man. I have an online dictionary I frequent on my phone, Merriam-Webster. It's handy for some things like uh, thesaurus and stuff, so I can add a little bit of vocabulary color to my messages and things of that nature. It's also handy to find out what our culture thinks is a good definition for a particular word. So if you wanted to know what sin means to the average American reader today, you could turn to Merriam-Webster and you could find a definition like this. Sin is an offense against rebellious, religious, or moral law. An offense against religious or moral law. An action that is or is felt to be highly reprehensible. For instance... It is a sin to waste food, an often serious shortcoming or fault, transgression of the god, a transgression of the law of God. That's a good sentence, or a vitiated state of human nature in which the self is estranged from God. So there is perhaps a good sentence or two in there to chew on, but there was a different era in our own history where the associations and connotations of the word sin. We're far more deep and profound than what I just read you. Let me read to you another entry. This is in a different dictionary from 1828. Noah Webster records for the reader, What is the common knowledge attached to the idea of sin? in a different time and place than we share today. Listen to what he says. Sin is the voluntary departure of a moral agent from a known rule or restitute or duty prescribed by God any voluntary transgression of the divine law or violation of a divine command, a wicked act, iniquity. Sin is either a positive act in which a known divine law is violated or it is the voluntary neglect to obey a positive divine command or a rule or duty clearly implied in such command. Sin commands, com- comprehends not action only, but neglect of known duty, all evil thoughts, purposes, words, and desires, whatever is contrary to God's commands or law. First John 3, Matthew 15, James 4, Sinner neither enjoy the pleasures of nor the peace of piety. Among divine, sin is original or actual. Actual sin above defined is the act of a moral agent in violating a known rule or duty. Original sin, as generally understood, is native depravity of heart to the divine will that corruption of nature of deterioration of the moral character of man which is supposed to be the effect of adam's apostasy and which manifests itself in moral agents by positive acts of disobedience to the divine will should i keep reading it goes on and on and on. A sin offering is an offering made to atone for sin. I've skipped four paragraphs. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5. A man enormously wicked. A sin differs from crime not in nature but in action. A crime against that which is a crime against society is sin against God. To depart voluntary from the path of duty prescribed by God. To violate the divine law in any particular by actual transgression or by the neglect of or non-observance of its injunctions, and on and on it goes. You see, there was a different era in the cultural consciousness of even us as a people, nationally speaking, where the idea of sin, the chief and fundamental malady, was of such a high concern that we understood the need to know exactly what our issue was, and consequently, proportionally, and conversely, who we needed To address that problem. Sin is much deeper than failing to eat all the food on your plate. Sin is an intrinsic malady. An inescapable one outside from a divine intervention of Almighty God. To satisfy perfectly and completely a sacrifice that would absorb the wrath of Almighty and Holy God for everyone. And that means everyone. Every sinner. Every human being. Who deserves it? These days, as perhaps illustrated by that very brief and cursory definition in our own dictionaries, rather than consider the weight and the profound wickedness of the human heart, we're much more likely to condone, to excuse, to ignore, to dismiss, to write off, to gloss over, to whitewash to manipulate, to medicate, to environmentally justify, to downplay, rationalize, and redefine the notion of sin. But seldom these days, even from pulpits in this land, do we ever hear much about repenting of sin. There might be a brief mention here or there. There may be negative ideas that we're taught to shun, but there is seldom a comprehensive soul-searching where the lens of Holy Scripture is placed so close to the heart that it sounds like this. Psalm 38, 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in Your anger, nor discipline me in Your wrath. For Your arrows have sunk into me and Your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of Your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. The context of Psalm 38 demands an understanding of the depth and depravity of man in his sin. To reference later, I would steer you to Leviticus 5, verses 5 through 13. And there, there's instructions in the law of old, of memorial offering. Where God had provided a provisional and a symbolic way for man's sin to be addressed. Satisfied and completed only in Christ, but seen as extremely important at this time. And this memorial offering was directly associated with the law in regard to atonement for sin for God's people. And so it was right and appropriate in this title a Psalm of David for the memorial offering that he should address with such soul-searching, gut-wrenching, personal and vulnerable words what the human heart needed at the time When there was atonement made for sin. And it helps us to understand everything that Jesus died to purify. And to wipe as far as the east is from the west. And to justify by his own blood. If we go through this chapter and just seek for some summary terms. To identify the heart of man. The sin nature of man. This is my attempt diseased, first of all, verse three, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, there's no health in my bones. David seems to indicate a leprous condition that sin has left him in, where he's wasting away from the surface to the core. There's an idea of drowning under his iniquities, which have gone over his head in verse four, and the heavy burden which is too heavy from him. He is like a man indeed Slung about with a millstone at his neck. Cast into the Marianas Trench. With no escape. Lest he could shake himself free of that sin. He will indeed drown. His life is flashing before his eyes. And so it goes. Diseased. Drowning. Infectious. Tortured. Anxious. Depressed. Isolated. Hunted. Paralyzed. Shamed. Abused. And desperate. This indeed is the condition of the human heart in dire need of salvation. Lessons from the great repenter. First of all, understand the context of your own soul through the context of Scripture. There is a depraved condition that leaves you utterly at the end of your rope, and indeed your rope is strapped only to a millstone, as it were, as you sink within the depths of your own iniquity to a hellish end, were it not for Christ. Secondly, lessons from the great repenter. Context and sin. Secondly, causes of affliction. First of all, I would have you notice by priority and fundamentally at the beginning, David sees a sovereign hand in these afflictions that he is enduring. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David understands a reason why he's going through what he's going through is a rebuke and a discipline. Today, it is not very popular to teach that God will bring you through sometimes what feels like the utter depths of despair in order to shape your character, conform your affections to his standards of holiness, and ultimately to sanctify you for his perfect ends. That is the purpose of trial given to us in other areas of Scripture like the book of James. And it is a great refuge when it seems like you're going through what your mind tells you is senseless circumstances. In God's world, in this universe, there is no such thing. David recognizes it. He knows that some of his enemies are out of line, but he knows he deserves every bit of what he's getting. But more than just the just deserves of his sin, he also sees beyond that as a redeemed and anointed one whose God's favor was upon, that if he was enduring his affliction right now, there was a purpose. It was a chastising. There was a parent-son-discipleship relationship. And there was a rebuke and a discipline. He only asked that it would not be one that would prove to be perdition and utterly destroy him. He says in verse 2, Your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh. And notice there's two because clauses. What are the reasons David is going through what he's going through? Number one in verse 3, because of your indignation. God in his disciplinary action and in his indignation, as David refers to it, is teaching his son some difficult lessons in a difficult way. Secondly, he says in verse 3, There is no health in my bones, another statement of cause, because of my sin. And as we move on, we see three reasons that David is going through what he's going through. And they are, in this order, the sovereign hand of a disciplinary God. Number two, the consequences of his own sin. And number three, he was, to some degree, the victim of injustice, of persecution. He says in verse 19, My foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. So some of what David is experiencing is from the hand of enemies who are unjustly persecuting him simply because he follows the Lord. They are wrongfully and falsely accusing, condemning, and pursuing him. But notice, David was so careful in his understanding of his own plight not to make the fact that some things he was enduring were coming unjustly be an excuse or to blind him to the purposes of God in it. That is, David did not see external adversity as a scapegoat for internal sin. In other words, he didn't see all these circumstances as just the product of the injustice of others or bad luck, the luck of the draw, getting the short end of the stick. He didn't see his plight in the Greek tragic form of indiscriminate forces being thrown around in a chaotic world where he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Though there were those who sought out David to kill him and did so unjustly, He recognized that there is no operative, evil or good, ultimately, in this life who does anything outside of the ultimate permission, the ultimate sovereignty and providence of Almighty God. Thus, David is careful to draw distinctions between the injustice of his foes, his own and equal depravity, and God's chastising. The causes of affliction can be difficult to discern. Difficult to process how you should take them and interpret your plight in light of the realities you're going through. But if you are really blinded by suffering, and the only question in your mind is, why, why, why? And that thought is so incessant that it prevents you from having any real answers, I would encourage us, exhort us, in fact, to go to Psalm 38 and drink deeply from the well. Drink deeply from the well and source that others who suffered have drunk from, David himself, in fact, who suffered greatly from other wicked men, from his own sin, but understood that God had purpose and direction in it. Isaiah nine twelve through 14 helps make this point so clearly. In the context of this verse, there are the evil operatives, but indeed we are shown that they are there to show something of God's ultimate power. Says the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch, and reed in one day. Do you understand the implications of that statement? Notice it was, by secondary cause, the Syrians and the Philistines who were the obvious and tangible enemies of Israel. Instruments in God's hand. Notice in verse 13, the people, the Israelites, not recognizing the disciplinary affliction of their enemies, and thus turning to the Lord who struck them through this means, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts, why and what are your sovereign purposes for this affliction? Because they did not heed the disciplinary affliction that God had led them through. God cut off Israel, head and tail, palm and branch. They had only to read Psalm 38 and recognize there is purpose what they're going through. Recognize their own heart, their tendency towards waywardness. Repent and see even their enemies as tools in the hands of God to sanctify them. Number three, lessons from the great repenter. Context in sin, causes of affliction. Number three, a catalog of woes. There is a disciplinary prescription that you can identify as you go through Psalm 38. David is systematically stripped of everything he might otherwise be tempted to lean on for support. There is indeed a sovereign cutting off and withholding of temporal and remedial supports. Number one, David, because of his circumstances, is forced to admit he cannot rely and is stripped from the temptation to feel like he's in a good place simply because he has his health. Verse three, there is no soundness in my flesh, there is no health in my bones. Verse 5, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. You ever notice how difficult it is when you're on your sickest day to be full of bluff and bluster and pride? When you're throwing up over the toilet, do you ever think, I'm the man. I can do this. No. The physical malady, when you realize the frailty of your own human body, and its dependence on God providing you healthy cells, healthy body systems, clean air, good food, nutrition, and everything else that our frail form is dependent on for its next breath, you realize, I have no grounds for confidence. And how many of us have prayed desperate prayers in that condition where our body is racked with fever, quaking with chills, and we say, Lord, if you bring me through, I promise to serve you to some degree of more faithfulness. And so he brings us through. And if we enjoy a long period of health, we're often tempted like the Israelites, God's people of old, to forget his loving kindness. And that we are in fact dependent on his almighty hand for our next breath. So there was a prescription of disciplinary affliction here. So David, even in his physical lack, was stripped of that crutch, of that temptation to see himself as strong in himself, because at least he had his health. He says in verse seven, my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. And again in verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails. The light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. The disciplinary prescription stripped David, at least for a time, of some aspects of his physical health to demonstrate his dependency on the Lord. Secondly, a psychological resolve. David slipped into a depression. My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me, in verse 4. Verses 8 and 9, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. Verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails. And again, you see this pathos here, this language of declension, decline, a deterioration, not just of the body, but also of the psyche and the mind. David is not one who can tenaciously just make up his mind to build a bridge and get over it. To have that unshakable resolve that leads him through those kind of heroic senses or heroic sensibilities we like to champion of. Someone who just has so much grit that they hang on with white knuckles and never let go. David was even stripped of that ability to have strength. In verse 17 he says, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. You see, again, that this is a systematic breaking down and a stripping of all remedial measures. It goes on, David's sense perception, verse 13 and 14, even the things that he knows and perceives can speak and articulate and his wits are lost. His social stability is gone. He cannot depend on the safety of his environment or even the government and the forces around him to keep the peace. He is a fugitive and lawless men are chasing him, the moral support is stripped from him. Verse 11, My friends and companions stand aloof at my plague, and my nearest kin stands afar off. And it really reminds us of Job, does it not? Where the Lord breaks down His own, His beloved, to the very core, as in part a testimony to us reading, that if we can lose all of these our physical health, our psychological resolve, our sense perception, our social stability, and our moral support, and still be, by some stretch of the imagination, standing on a rock, then we must have a true faith. And it must be Jesus Christ that is firmly underneath this soul. That really is the message in this catalog of woes. That when the trial comes and it shows you to be stable, It also demonstrates that your means of stability are utterly alien to what you could do, accomplish, and would otherwise be tempted to lean on. And sometimes disciplinary affliction, the Lord will either do a sweeping work or he'll put his finger on an area like that and strip us of it for our own good and for our own benefit, ultimately in his glory. And the fourth and final lesson from the great repenter David was chastised unto waiting. So David was disciplined for what purpose? Unto what end? Well, I would say from the context, unto waiting. What is waiting biblically? Well, first let's read in verse 15. David, as he gathers his last resource available for hope, pleads as follows, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, Who will answer? For you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Verse 18, there's this other striking tone of clarity in the barrage and cacophony of pain. It says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And he closes with more rings of truth. Verse 21 and 22, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. In biblical waiting, in the concept of reliance, it's not a sense of just waiting, tapping your finger, checking the clock for the bus to arrive at the station. But instead, there is a tangible, a complete shift of hope and sense of confidence Away from those things that you otherwise relied on, onto the things of the Lord. David had perhaps in the past waited on his physical health. He had waited for and depended on his psychological resolve. Perhaps his armies, his weapons, uh, the circumstances of his relationships, people who agreed with him, his own sense perception, the social stability of his environment. David had waited on those things perhaps, but when they were all stripped, David was chastised unto waiting upon and only upon the Lord. All other alternate and temporal sources of hope and help are gone at this moment. Salvation is proven to be sufficient in Christ alone. All other measures that we would otherwise wait upon and wait for are proven bankrupt. And thus the corrigible soul is moved to invest exclusively in the Lord God of salvation who owns it by proprietary right for assurance. And this, as the writer of Hebrews says, is indeed the peaceable fruit of righteousness that all partake in who have been trained for it by the chastising and indeed loving hand of God. David was saved unto waiting. I'm sorry, chastised unto waiting. David was chastised unto contrition and confession. His sorrowful state moved him to confess his sins. And David was chastised unto a knowledge of personalized salvation. David, in this ver- these verses right here, strikes a contrasting and very particular tone. There is language of salvation throughout the scriptures referring to his nation, to Israel. But under these circumstances, he knew that there was a greater cry for hope and help than just the plight of the ethnic people, that his very soul was utterly and personally dependent on the God who could rescue and ransom and preserve a remnant and a people and a nation. He needed this God to not forsake him. He wanted this God to be close, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation." Most would have judged, listen to me carefully, most would have judged that all of David's prayers or their own prayers would not have been answered under these conditions. Most judge answered prayer on praying for things and then receiving them that David was denied. And remember this, what do we pray for? Well, naturally, and it's not wrong, we pray for physical health. We pray that we would have inner resolve. We pray for better sensibility to navigate the difficult situations in front of us. We pray for a network of family and support for the body of Christ to rally around us. But what if the answer to those prayers is stayed for a time so that a greater answer may come? That apart from God alone, all of those things are worthless, powerless, and meaningless. And so let us remember to condition our own expectation and prayer to the ultimate answer, which is help and salvation and God chastising us unto waiting on Him, trusting on Him. We look to the New Testament to see where all of the old is ultimately fulfilled. And in these verses we rush forward to 2 Corinthians 5.21. In that section, that scripture, Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ became sin for us. And thus we have the fulfillment ultimately of the memorial offering. He became sin and endured in his own flesh the very curses that the psalmist was fraught with in Psalm 38. He became, as Isaiah declared, as the psalmist foreshadows, and as the New Testament announces complete, he became broken, tortured, maligned, isolated, hunted, paralyzed, shamed, abused, persecuted, and crucified. And Christ ultimately is the memorial offering for the sinner who sees himself in light of Psalm 38, confesses his sin. And His hope and waiting is in and on Christ, His Lord, and His salvation. How can this prayer be answered? Let me say in closing, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. How can that prayer be answered? That prayer can be answered because there was a man who died. God Himself, the perfect sacrifice who cried out in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six my god my god why have you forsaken me and we understand that moment in the light of our salvation as being vastly different than david's circumstance in one sense david deserved to be forsaken but this was god's only son and when we hear the pathos of that statement and when we hear it ringing forth From the Scriptures, it is the ultimate of agony and abandonment from one who is holy, perfect, sinless, and law-keeping. The only man who ever stood up to the measure that Spurgeon employed when he said, What creature, what deplorable creature is man shown to be against the standard of God's Word. But this was his only son. And here he is in the ninth hour, and Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema. Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, recalling the title of Psalm 38, there is the fulfillment of the memorial offering. So we might, in Christ, never be left to ultimate abandonment from God to hell, but now embrace the chastising hand of God unto salvation. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, how thankful are we for your holy scriptures. They are indeed a buoy, Lord, in the harbor, fraught with the perils of this life. They are indeed a beacon of hope in the darkest nights where we navigate, Lord Jesus, through the uncertain seas of our own frailty. They are indeed the rock of salvation, because in them Christ is revealed, which firmly places us, apart from the miry clay and on an unshakable foundation. They are the fruit-producing seed that never withers, fails, or fades, but is able to accomplish and indeed always does everything you sovereignly intend. And so we thank you for the mooring of your scriptures and the foundation they are to us. I pray that we would find refuge in them as your servants did of old this week. I pray not only, Lord, that they would re- be represented in a book on our shelf, but they would be written on the tables of our hearts. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here who have not been drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, that they might leave their sins as David was moved to do at this altar today In light of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, their Lord and Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for this time we've had together. May you be glorified as we leave. And it's in your name we pray, amen.